I want you to get back to that sense of you're entering this unknown realm. You're moving into this kind of place, which it, it's not safe. This, this mystical place. You don't know what's behind the door. You don't know uh, what traps lie away from you. You don't know whether if you open that door, the spot, a little pin will prick you in the finger and you'll die of poisoning, right? And that, that sense of um, trepidation or, or whatever it is, jeopardy. <laughs> Hello Rescuers, my name is Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue. Today I bring you the second in a series of conversations I've shared over the period between the seasons with some of the most creative gamers I know. Today's chat is with Menion, aka Rob, the creator and host of Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushi, a podcast that hails from Japan. This conversation was about advanced Dungeons and Dragons and arose as I was trying to put together my own open table game, now known as Heraeth. At the time, I was wavering on which rule system to use, and ultimately, this chat helped me decide. Big thank you in advance to Rob for hopping online sometime back in June and sharing this delightful and insightful chat. I hope that you'll find our discussion helpful and interesting. This is Season 11, Episode 5. Discussing AD&D with Menion, a.k.a. Rob. Well, welcome back to the show. Menion, a.k.a. Rob from... Confessions of a wee timorous bushy. There you go. There you go. You did it for me. Awesome <laughs> Hopefully stuff. I got it right. <laughs> yeah. How are you? <laughs> um, yeah, reason to be well. It's, um, it's a Monday evening here, um, so you know, back to work and... Trying uh, slowing down for the evening, mm-hmm. and you're not drunk yet, then. Uh, well, I did have a couple before I came on. Uh, I confess. <laughs> well, it's 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 midday ish here. Uh, I don't know half midday. I got coffee rather than anything else. Otherwise, I will fall asleep this afternoon, and that's not good. Old men and things. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks for coming on, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a very classic game, the official advanced dungeons and dragons from gary gygax from 19 so was it 79 78 for the php isn't it yeah but you know the what most people refer to these days is dnd first edition well yeah. of course i think for you and i is just advanced dungeons and dragons and probably yeah, always will be much. um and i wanted to talk a little bit about why i i think we both value this game um and i was interested in finding out why you value it and also, I wanted to have a bit of advocacy for it, I suppose, um, having just spent uh, quite a few days actually reviewing these old books. I've, I'm holding up in front of um, Rob, my copies are here, um, yeah. that you know, have survived through the years. So, yeah, tell us about it. When, when did you get involved with Dungeons & Dragons and, uh, you know, especially AD&D? Let's, let's start there. Well, I came into the hobby a little bit after you, I think, um, so my first book was actually the box set was the Mensa Red Box. Mm-hmm. I think I got that 
Christmas 1984, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I played one game of, only one game of that. Prior to that, I'd been doing fighting fantasy and so on. Um, but I couldn't get the players. But when I actually entered the, what we would call, I suppose, senior school mm-hmm. back then, um, it was a Dungeons and Dragons club. And unfortunately, they weren't playing basic. They were playing advanced Dungeons. Unfortunately, they were playing advanced <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons. So suddenly I was plunged into a very different world uh, with many different uh, races and classes that didn't appear in the basic rules. Mm. And that would be about, I don't know, September, I suppose September, October 1985, I think. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So we're they're definitely in um, Stranger Things territory here for those history buffs out there. Well, certainly, certainly that age group. Yeah, I would have been 11. No, absolutely. I, I was you know, 85. What was I, about 14? So, yeah. Um, and similar to you, I've been playing. Actually, I think I had I had the player's handbook. Um, I have here the sixth printing, which is um, dated as January 1980. Um, so I probably had that sometime during 1980, which made me about nine years old at the time. The reason I have that is because my friend Daniel started playing um, D&D with us. And I know that we played with the BX1981 basic set yeah. at some which point. Classic. We played with that. But before that, somehow or other, he had a monster manual and he had a DMG and he had a player's handbook. So this must be like around about 7980. Um, we'd been playing Traveller since 77. So uh, I, I came in as a player and I only ever owned the player's handbook um, at first. Do you know what I mean? I think maybe in the, I then, I now have a copy of, well, I have from a, a revised edition, December 79 DMG, which I bought as a kid. And I have the Monster Manual, um, which is, correctly, what's this? Just out of curiosity. Um, 77. So what's this one? 77, 78. So it's 1970, yeah, 4th edition, August 79. So that gives yes. a date, doesn't it? It's, so it's an interesting it. one mm. because it's a, it's a, the Monster Manual is actually a bridge because mm. it comes out before the rules for AD&D. And it's, a, mm. it's a bridge between uh, original Dungeons and & Dragons and the Holmes Basic yeah. and Advanced. So it's an, it's an odd one. It's quite an odd set of Yeah. Rules. And the history of it fascinates me, um, yeah. really, really does. And, and that, for me, that's why I've been delving back. I've been back through 1974, uh, all the way through Holmes. And then, of course, we arrive here, really, at Advanced Dungeons Dragons. And then really where it kicked off for me and my friends was then the basics. I don't know why basic and expert. Well, I remember playing games with basic um, and expert in 1981. And with Beckme in 1983, using Monster Manual and other elements of AD&D, and we just thought it was the same game. So that's how much we knew. I guess it sounds from your background that you had a little bit more of an, an objective separation of those two things. You knew that they were different. Yeah, yeah, um, yes, we did. So, like, one one of the oddities about Advanced Dungeons and Dragons is it doesn't assume that you know. It's it, it, sorry, the, the reverse. It assumes you know the rules. It assumes you know Dungeons and Dragons already from some source, from mm. basic Dungeons and Dragons, original Dungeons and Dragons. So perhaps, like I did, you get taught uh, through a group. A group teaches you, and you get <laughs> sort of initiated it into this strange cult. Um, and so, but there's lots still. It's quite um, difficult for a, a ten-year-old or eleven-year-old or whatever to get into because the mm. rules are very. Sp- specialist and the situations that are described are already quite well, as the name implies advanced right mm. 
So what I found I did was go back and I started to, when I was using the battle system and also the basic set of mm. uh, Dungeons and Dragons, I found that I could, a lot of the sequences, the, the, the combat sequences and so on made a lot more sense than what was written, what I had used previously. So I found mm. I started going back to basic Dungeons and Dragons in order to understand advanced. Mm. Um, and that seemed to help it, yeah, quite a bit. Before, of course, the second edition. Yeah, I had a weird thing yesterday. I was um, reading through the player's handbook to put together some characters and and then referencing the DMG to find saving throws and the attack and the attack charts, which is a wondrous separation that until yesterday I never fully appreciated why that was. And it and then it's finally clicked with me. And it has to do with how I think the game was being played back then. Um, but one of the things that you said about the game assumes you know how to play is I looked at the saving throw tables and nowhere in the DMG so far that I could find does it tell us what die to roll for those tables. <laughs> it says these are the numbers required to save and there's a whole justification for saving throws and why they're there. But I couldn't find anywhere that you're supposed to roll D20 and roll high, which is what I learned from basic D&D, right? Mm. Um, and it's little little stuff like that that actually are the clues that the statement you made about how it sort of implies some knowledge, I think mm. is very true. It's, really it's very, very un- such an unusual rule set. Um, mm. Going rereading the Dungeon Master's Guide or even the Player's Manual, the way it's laid out and the the, the topics that are considered important for the player to know, mm. it should tend not to be rules at all, right? Right, it's no, absolutely. Like play style. Mm. It's um, yeah, the the vestiges of of methodology is what I would call it. You know, in there that were laid down in seventy four pretty strongly in terms of the dungeon game. And I think reinforced through, I mean, a lot of the basic sets reinforce an awful lot of good methodological practice, you know, like the, the, how to do a dungeon call, how to do a hex call in expert, you know, that sort of stuff, which is sort of missing, but heavily implied <laughs> um, yes, yes. You know what I mean, in these books, which is, yeah. which is glorious. Um, so, okay. So there's a little bit of our, our collective story, I suppose, about with these books. I let go of AD&D when I left school in 89. Um, we I think we stopped oh. playing D and D quite so much by by eighty five. We were playing Rollmaster, we were and, and other such games, you know. Um, and I let go of AD when I left school because I left my group and I went to university and there was no group. Um, and the second edition for me is, is something I rediscovered in the late nineties. Um, so I really didn't get into the second. The second edition is released in eighty nine, if I remember correctly. And I was going away. I didn't have the money, right. so didn't pay attention um and and for me the real return to D was the third edition in 2000 i played a little bit of second edition for a couple of years on and off but um well i wasn't gming i was player when i started to gm i was third edition so you know i went from first to third really um mm-hmm. and i'm filling in the blanks what about your story how did you get back to this yeah it's a funny one because you know a lot of people who play like i tend to play first edition currently mm. or BX basic D and D style games, um, but uh, I probably like all told I I wouldn't have played it more for more than four years, mm. and not even that right because mm. I was actually playing a lot of Middle Earth role playing and then Rollmaster and other things mm. as well. Uh, Warhammer Fantasy role play actually really came in towards the end of the the eighties for us, and we really dropped from AD and D at some point. But when the second edition came out, I really found that it it just and this is something that a lot of first edition people really would not agree with me on, but I found it was just laid out so well. 
It was mm. laid out really well. Uh, a lot of the problems in layout presentation that were present in the present in the uh, first edition kind of really smoothed over in the second edition. It's very much a similar game, I thought, mm. at least at the period, beginning when it first came out, when the, the yeah. core rules came out. Very much a similar game to the first edition, but a lot of the I- issues or the unclear points had been clarified. So we found it really... Um, particularly Thaco, which is now demonized mm. uh, and, and often conflated with the uh, attack matrices. Mm. But, but I found that, that, we found that just an amazing, amazing yeah. um, advance. And it was so fast, it really sped up the game. Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. When I started playing second edition D&D in 1998, so when I first came up to Nottingham and I met my friend Ian, he introduced me to Thaco properly, I think. And I think that was the first time we really, you know, I got that. And it was like, wow. I can do this in my head. <laughs> um, and of course, I believe there are some slight mathematical differences between that and the matrices, but basically there are, you know, there are. No, nobody cares, you know, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, the general armor classes, mm-hmm. most levels of play, you know, the yeah. FACO, yeah, they, they match up very well. Yeah, that's cool. And, and I, like you, when I've come back to second edition and looking at it, I was really impressed. And I thought, wow, this is organized. I can understand this. And as a player... I guess, you know, we'd seen a shift in the way in which games are played over a decade or a couple of decades. Um, I think, you know, when we look right back to the history of this, you know, we have stories of Gygax behind the screen and, you know, and Arneson, you know, asking players to roll things without telling them what's going on, where the rules are largely invisible, if you like, to majority of the players. And then over time, players learn the rules and it becomes more and more sort of in front of them, you know, they have their sheets and they have all their information. And I think it's interesting to me is that AD&D is obviously at a transition point there because there's a large part of the DMG, which is do not look at this if you're a player. And that includes yeah. attack matrices and saving throws and things yeah. that these days you consider to be, I need to know this. Um, but of course, you didn't back then. And of course, I think we see that that transition made by the time we get to second edition, you know, where yeah. players really do have this information. Um, which is just fascinating as well. So from a historical context, I just find this game really interesting. But anyway, what I really wanted to get to is like, uh, why are you you're playing this quite a bit and BX quite a bit? So tell us why. Go on. Why? Um, yeah, so obviously we're we, we not going to go into any addition wars because that's you nope. know, kind of not really very con- <laughs> constructive whatsoever. Um, um, I think I think if it was entirely nostalgia, I would have gone for second edition. Mm-hmm. perhaps because I'd played that more, I think more intensely than mm-hmm. first edition. For some reason I found myself being sucked back into first edition. And I, I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, and maybe you can help me, but I, I think it might be because of this. It's at a strange position in games, uh, gaming history. Mm-hmm. It, it's sort of, I'm very strongly drawn towards original Dungeons and Dragons, which I never knew existed, you know, when mm. I was a kid. So yeah. there's no nostalgia there whatsoever. Yeah, um, same. And, and what I find with first edition is it it it, um, it it draws together a lot of the original Dungeons and Dragons and the supplements, and then kind of gives it as a little spin. It gives a little mm. Gygaxian spin to give it a certain character. Um, but um, there's a lot of freedom in there. There's, there's a great deal of freedom still in the rules that slowly through second edition not necessarily the core rules but uh, as the various other rule books came out the splat books and so on came out Mm. that 
it became more and more codified. Everything became codified. Mm. Um, and so there was less and less room. There is less and less room to, to move. So I'm, mm. I am really drawn to second ed. But for some reason, yeah, the, the first ed is just a fast game. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it well, obviously, that helps quite a bit. Um, I think as long as people are happy playing that style of game, mm-hmm. and that's really the important thing, is every, as long as everybody's kind of happy playing that kind of game, then it really runs fast mm. and smooth, and you can const- it gives you freedom to concentrate on other things. And what I find interesting as well, like reading back through it over the last few days, is Guy Gax's insistence that you know this is a game as well. He makes many references to the idea there are lots of other games out there that if you want a simulation of a so-called fantasy world whatever that means um, then this is not the game for you uh, this is a game primary and first and foremost you know and i guess in modern parlance this might come into that gamist way of thinking that you know it's um it's all about us having some great challenge uh, some exploration and um you know the rules are a means to having a bit of a laugh uh, you know, first and foremost, it isn't the, you know an attempt to somehow simulate a fantasy world, and it's certainly not even really narratively concerned beyond the kind of classic emergent story thing that you know we talk about a lot now in the sort of old school movement, I suppose. Um, and and so yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it, to to look at a game that is designed and optimized for just that play. You know, to sit down with your buddies, go down a dungeon or whatever and kill monsters, nick treasure, all that sort of stuff. But don't you find it feels a little bit different the way um, that is presented compared to uh, the Moldvay BX D&D? So mm-hmm. the Moldvay BX D&D is very, very clear mm-hmm. what the game is intending to do. The AD&D, there seems to be a little bit more kind of like vague. It's kind of a little bit mm-hmm. more vague. I mean, it's there, but it seems like it's also implied that you could do anything with this game. Yeah, I think it's actually explicitly stated somewhere. I'd love to quote it. I've got a book open in front of me, but um, it's like finding those pages. But yeah, I mean, you know, do what you want with yeah. this world. He, he interestingly, he just he describes it as D and D as a world. Yeah, Advanced Dungeons Dragons is a world. Of course, this world is not complete. It needs organizers and adventurers to order and explore it. It needs you. Um, a fantasy role playing game is an exercise in imagination and personal creativity. The organizer of the campaign, the Dungeon Master, must use the system to devise an individual and unique world. Uh, this world is full of weird monsters, strange peoples, multitudinous states, and, and fabulous treasures of precious items and powerful magic stride, fearless adventurers. Yeah, you got this whole feeling of I'm giving you um, a wonderful you know, collection of, of tools to go and run with, um, but you're going to have to bring your own spin to it got this real strong sense of that coming through this and yeah it's not limited like bx and beckme's basic sort of says here is a dungeon um environment and of course you know the rules in here cover all of that but from the word go you get this sense of this language of the world of something bigger something grander and to me it feels like this is where dungeons and dragons is starting to really come out of the dungeon um a little bit but i don't know what you make of that yeah, I mean, there are rules. There's rules right from the beginning. Obviously, Beckme covers this mm. as well, but the advanced rules precede that. So, I mean, mm. it's starting to talk about kingdoms and taxes and mm. um, uh, hierarchies and class and all the different elements that you can bring in, and particularly time, timekeeping. Yeah, we shouldn't mm. forget that. Timekeeping is obviously really important in the BX rules, but here mm. it's not simply 
when is your torch going to burn out? It's how long does it take, take you to train? Uh, how long does it take you to go into a dungeon and come out of a dungeon? Now? Mm. Um, um, how long does it take you to create a potion, whatever? Um, like er- everything has a cost, not just in gold pieces, um, but also in in time. And mm. the, the, the idea that people are just, some people I, I know have drawn from that is that, well, you may have more than one character. Mm. Some may not be operating at the same time as others. Yeah. Because due to these uh, time constraints, the, the need for training or researching new spells or whatever it might be. Um, so it's interesting. I think this comes comes out of 74. I mean, the 74 game seems to imply yeah. a series of uh, different modes of play. So the initial mode of play is down in the Mega Dungeon. Um, I think then the characters become wealthy enough and they become name level as we would call it in the modern day. And they are starting to build their baronies and their towers and their their monasteries or whatever it is that they did based on their character class. Um, and then it becomes more of a kingdom ruling game. And I think underneath that, if you look back at these war games, you know, Gygax and Arneson war, war games, they're probably starting to fight big battles. And that's where we get the later on, we get the sort of battle system stuff that kind of finds its way through into D&D. And I think that those tiers of players you might use in modern parts, that kind of progression um, is very much forefront of Gygax's mind when he's writing this, that, you know, it isn't just a dungeon game. It is actually this idea that you're going to take a character through their life and have very, very many different challenges. Um, I think it's probably most obvious when you read the DMG. There's just so much stuff in there that's about, you know, different like hirelings and, you know, building armies and how many followers do you have and how big is your, your castle and all that kind of malarkey. Um, all of which, of course, if we look at the modern game, is just not there, which is interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah, large parts of it have disappeared. It's become much more about the, the individual individual mm. characters from the beginning to the end. So it's an arc, arcs and so on. Yeah. Uh, one thing that, I mean, I didn't experience the, I dropped out of the game um, for a while, um, around 1995 or so. Mm-hmm. So I missed a lot of the things that were coming in after that. But mm. um, one thing that was interesting was that when I got into the hobby, obviously modules were quite available, mm. but there was still a sense that you were making stuff up, that you were, you were really supposed to make your dungeon or make your world. Mm-hmm. You were supposed to make, um, you know, and we used to draw maps and create mm. these little lands and stuff because it was a lot more generic at the time. Mm. Even the modules were far more ma- generic. And then uh, towards the end of first edition, you started to see much more concrete settings uh, like Forgotten mm. Realms. Um, and, and it really changed, I think. It changed. I, I really enjoyed it at the time and mm. I still find that those supplements very interesting. Yeah. Um, but I feel like at, at, even today, I still really feel dr- strongly drawn to modules and campaigns mm. and all these things that actually I, I really want to get away from mm. um, because I think it stifles one of the most important parts of the game and it, it controls everybody's, not just the GM, but it controls the player's um, assumptions about why we're playing. What, we, we, are we playing to experience these classic modules mm. are we, or are we... Which sure, yeah, we can we can create our own experience from playing it, right? It's going to be just mm. ours to a certain extent. But or are we going to sit down and actually create a world that's tailored for our table? And that's something that really I I know I should be doing, <laughs> um, 
and it's still something to be done. So it's funny that, yeah, still this game um, has a lot to offer that I'm, I really haven't, I've only just kind of scratched now. I, you know, as a younger prep kid, I did do that stuff a little bit, but mm. it's something I still haven't really developed. And I know you're more really interested in that. You're interested in tweaking things and doing things for yourself, for mm. your players, right? That's, that's the impression I get. Yeah, and no, I'm also trying to, I mean, right now, and the reason I came back to this book is because I'm trying to build what Justin Alexander calls an open table, which I think is a bit of a return to the way the game was probably played way back in the day. So the idea is that you just have your mates around every now and then and you run a game in your campaign world. And it doesn't matter who's at the table each time, you know, it's like whoever's available comes along and plays with their character. You know, if you look back at the history of D&D, I think what you see is, you know, Arson has his mates round and they start playing Blackmore. Gygax has his mates round and they start playing in Greyhawk. And essentially, each session that he runs, which can be date, I think at one point, Gygax was running almost daily for a while. You know, they're really obsessively into this thing. But whoever came around that night or, you know, whatever, would sit down at the table and play. And sometimes I get the feeling that they would have probably been playing a continuation into delving into Greyhawk. But there are other times where the evidence suggests that individual players are getting on with the GM and doing something separate. Um, we hear great tales of the great Svenny, for example, from the um, Twin Cities, you know, where uh, he has this entire kind of subplot thing going on and even goes as far as to create his own dungeon. Um, you know, like discover some great mega dungeon, which is Tonisberg, which, you know, has just been republished by um the guys right. who did uh the right. secrets of blackmore but you know actually there's this there's whole like layers of of like stuff going on in this campaign world which is being run by eventually a series of gms you know you, i think it's mike carr is running Gy- gygax's gray hawk alongside gygax yeah. you know and and the thing is if you're like uh, a big gestalt it's growing and growing and going on and doing its own thing but the point is that the the table is open that it isn't this dedicated campaign with a linear plot or even a, a open plot, you know, a kind of branching plot. It is literally just we're coming around and we're doing another expedition. We're doing something else in this in the world today. And I think that I'm trying very much to get back to that style and approach. Um, I'm also trying to get away from the rules being in front of everybody all the time and allowing you know, players to to get into character and to go explore the world in a more otherworld immersive kind of way, to Nick Daniel James's phrase, um, which means taking the rules away from them. And it's all very interesting because AD&D is doing an awful lot of that. If you if you I turn up with those books, it's doing an awful lot of those things. It's assuming a lot of those things, you know, um, right up front, I think. Yeah, I mean, there are people who will say that it's AD&D is very, it's very clear. The rules are very clear, clear and it's, you're, everybody knows what how you should play it from the rulebook and uh, you just don't understand, uh, you know, high guy gexine if you, if you say that it's uh, ambiguous. But I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I don't buy into that. I think there are, the rules are clear or you can draw very, um, you can draw through the rules, you can look, look at dragon's foot and arrive at a game mm. <laughs> that can be played if you <laughs> from those rules um but i think that's not how we all played it i think we all played it fairly um individually our interpretation is quite varied quite a lot yeah but, i think uh, that was the case from 1974 onwards yeah we certainly didn't know know what we were playing really 
no. as players because we, we weren't looking in the Dungeon Master's Guide. <laughs> yeah, or, nor the Monster Manual, you know. Um, and I think, well, we shouldn't be anyway. <laughs> I think what's really interesting is that like, for me, that Beck Me, one of the reasons I have such a fond memory of that is it tells me exactly how to play um, in a way that I probably yeah. hadn't figured out. So I wasn't a GM at that point. You know, I hadn't taken mm. that. I was way too scared to do that because the whole thing was arcane and bizarre. And I kind of, when I look back at first edition now, I can kind of see why I was fascinated. I remember being fascinated with the player's handbook and pouring over it and trying to get my head around everything in there and not touching the other rest at all. You know, I secretly bought, a, I remember I bought the copy of the MG and it was like a wee bit of a secret, that one. And I didn't have the guts to actually really read it, you know, for a long, long while. It was, it was a kind of a curiosity thing. I need to you know on one level i want to have a peek i was that naughty player that he talks about in the intro you know to the dmg don't let your players see it they, they deserve the, i think it tells you, you deserve death if you are a player really. yeah 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 it is like pretty that's a lot well, <laughs> well people have drawn people say that that's really uh you know he really he really was quite a power freak, but I, I, th- I think I think there's a lot of uh, comedy. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. he's got a great sense of humour, oh, and he does way. change in tone. He and often he contradicts himself as well. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> From place to place. Um, but and I was one of those peeping players that he complains about and sort of says you shouldn't be looking. But I think that you know that, that there's an important point here, which is that actually not knowing what the DM knows does enrich your game. You know, mm. I'm I'm back. You know, there's um. Ison's vow, which I did a whole episode on a long while ago, you know, about this whole I would not allow my players to see the rules, um, comes from around about 1975-76, which is a statement by a guy, Sandy oh, Ison, yeah. who is basically saying, you know, I had such an immersive experience in the dungeon that now having looked at these rules and just seen how sort of ter- terrible they are and shabby they are and how kind of prosaic it all is, really, that I wouldn't let my players see it. And I think the I interpreted that as the value behind that being actually what's really cool is the imagined experience that you have with this kind of a game. And actually that looking at the rules can really spoil it. And I think that Gygax is carrying some of that spirit forward and saying, you know, if you know all of the tables and ins and outs of everything, then it's just not quite the same experience. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but I feel like my experience in recent weeks where we've been playing with rules behind the screen is that, again, the players are telling me that they get a richer game when it's all hidden away, that they are much more in the mode of their character and they're acting, behaving differently because of it, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I can see, I can see the sense of that. I think um, for, for a long while I played, I played computer game, computer role-playing games. So, mm. you know, whether it was uh, the third edition style games mm. or uh, more recently things like Skyrim, one thing that you know about these games is the rules. The rules are very stark mm. and you can see how to build your character. Once mm. you start building, once you start um, cracking the rules and, and breaking it down and seeing where you have to be in order to get this feat or that feat or this skill or whatever mm. it might be, the game changes really, really starkly. Um, but if you take those elements away, then instead of saying, I'm going to use, okay, uh, for example, it's, this is not mean, meant to be mean, but for example, uh, fifth edition, um, we will have what two, two or three cantrips that we can use again and again and again mm-hmm. and again. So we've got magic hand and lights, let's say, or, or mm-hmm. maybe now we can we can to overcome these issues. We can always use those 
points. We can always use this. And we no longer have to, it's like a shortcut in a way. So we no longer have to think um, independently of, of the rules or the, the tools that are given to us by, by the game. So moving away from that now, um, you know, what's kind of fun about a game that is as sparse as first edition is, is, is that you're like, well, how on earth do I do these things? I've got, I'm, I'm a wizard. I've got two hit points. And I've got maybe two spells, but I can only, I can only memorize one and it's mm. light. <laughs> what, do, what do we do? So, mm. so then uh, besides tossing daggers and stuff, the, the kind of um, the whole dynamic of the game and the, the group dynamics changed quite a bit as well. And, um, you have to ask the GM, a lot of questions and, and you're trying to gain an environmental advantage or a knowledge advantage or you're trying to talk to people to get to learn about where you're going or learn the weaknesses of something um, and and that is uh well it's, it's certainly very different right mm. how have your players responded i mean you said you play a bit of first edition um you know, how have players responded to that as rules? I, I guess that's a mixed picture. I don't know. Well, the group is still alive. Um, mm. So I set up a group uh, for people who may not know. I, I'm in I'm in uh, Western Japan. Mm-hmm. And I set up a group doing first edition because that's what I knew. And it was only meant to be temporary. Mm-hmm. But it's still running. Um, and three of the original members are still there. Mm-hmm. And we've got six members, not including myself. So it's a big group and mm-hmm. it's first edition. So, I mean, that's, I suppose that says something about it. Um, it says a lot. I mean, obviously, these people know third edition more or fifth edition more than they know first edition. Mm-hmm. They still don't really understand the rules of first edition. <laughs> um, and I don't think they really, most of them have read, actually, even bother reading the PHB. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, coming back every week i mean mm. people don't miss sessions um and it's not certainly not down to my dungeon mastering mm. sometimes it stinks you know um but other times it's you know amazing the, the group is it really feel, works you know so mm. I, I guess it's just keeping the game running and keeping the game running and working with what you've got um so obviously system does matter but mm. um yeah, there's so much you can do beyond the system that's only implied by system, I suppose. Mm. I'm curious about it because you said earlier that the game runs fast and um, I'm going to take your word for that. I, I certainly don't remember it being slow. I remember like when we moved to Rollmaster, that was a bit slower. Um, but I look at the DMG and I look at all those attack tables and the weird modifiers of weapons versus different armor and some of the other oddities in the rules. And I kind of think to myself, Cracky, this must be clunky as heck to play with. Yeah. What is it like? Um, that's a good question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that, that's, a, that's a valid point. So I do use the uh, modifiers by, for weapon by by armor or whatever mm. it is called. Uh, and I do use uh, attack speed when there's a draw on initiative and so mm. on. I've made a few little changes. So for example, I use a roll D6 and it's the lowest, I use the lowest number wins. Right. And then I add numbers to that instead of reversing the two dice, yeah. which is one of the, uh, I just use the lowest one and add uh, spell casting times or whatever to work out mm-hmm. when things occur within a round. Um, 
yeah, certainly the attack tables do take time. So what I find is um, I, I print out a lot of stuff. I print out uh, the Dungeon Master screens and I I put a little mark through the number for zero on, mm -hmm. all, on the various charts so I can automatically see what I need to get to zero. Uh, so I can instantly do a Thaco based on that. But also mm -hmm. writing stuff down for a monster, you know, writing down like a Thaco score if, you, if that works well. Mm. Um, there's a number of other things you can do as well um, but yes compared to BX it runs slower yeah. it can run slower and one of the things that does slow it down which we haven't mentioned is the declaration and this is something that uh, was a problem actually last night's session mm -hmm. we, were, we were playing uh, people who are not used to declaring and declaring as a group mm -hmm. they can it can just take forever and people then then say you start the round, you roll initiative after declaration, and they don't know what they're doing. And, or right. they say that they're going to do something else. It's like, well, that's not what you said you want to do. Yeah, they start yeah. to react in a different way. Um, and there's reasons why the declaration is there, which we don't really have to go into. Mm. Um, and I think um, in that way, BX certainly is fast, faster mm -hmm. because BX only requires you to declare in, for certain things. Um, yeah. Yeah, spell casting being the biggest one, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is that for me, you know, because I remember back in 80, I got RingQuest and um, that has, you know, declaration that, you know, what it are you does. doing? And then And then you go initiative and then you, you know, you go into the actions. And so, again, this is about style of play and methodology going way back when I certainly remember that we played in this style. And I think... I don't know. I didn't go and look it up, but I'm pretty sure we probably did something similar with Rollmaster and other games as well. It wasn't an unusual step in a turn in combat to say, right, everybody, what are you doing? Go around the table. Yeah, boom, 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 what are you doing? And then making a, you know, the roll for initiative and then you follow through on adjudicating through all of those steps. Yeah. And of course, you would have had a caller, right? You would have yeah. had a caller as well for a larger group, which yeah. often didn't happen. I don't... <laughs> Maybe we did use them yeah, we we sort of did. We had like um, a sort of lead player. It was probably the most experienced person, um, and we'd all sort of have our say. And then ultimately, this person would go, "Yeah, that's what we're doing." You know, like if you like, they were the if we needed a decision maker. You know, somebody if there were two or three of us arguing about something or disagreeing about something, in the end, the caller would make that decision. And I think that's how we interpreted that making the call that Americanized. Sort oh, of really? Slang, you okay. know. Um, but of course, and again, that's an interpretation of what we read in the rule book, you know, when it mm. talks about having a caller. Um, I don't remember it being like, I hear stories from way back in the 70s of groups where, you know, there was a player who decided what everybody else did. The way I interpreted it was what was the caller basically um, gathered all the mm -hmm. other players' mm -hmm. desires and stuff uh, and, uh, you know, uh, declarations. And then kind of relayed that to the dungeon master so, yeah. the, so the dungeon master wasn't always having to talk and think and mm. collect and yeah yeah um, i guess these days we just expect the gm to pay attention don't we and listen to everybody but <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's asking a lot it <laughs> is at our age <laughs> it is i mean this is the, one of the things that happens to me frequently at any table i'm running is you know i'm checking something out or thinking about something else and the players are talking and, and i become aware that they're actually trying to they've made a decision and they're trying to communicate back to me i don't know if you ever had this moment and it's just horribly embarrassing if you're supposed to be you know they expect that you're listening to every word they say which really isn't happening um but there we go we digress so um 
coming back to the first edition and your experience with it more recently, um, why have you stuck with it? I mean, if if in the end, second edition is by your own admission better organized, and so is Osric. Yeah, and yeah, and Osric, and and <laughs> BX is faster and clearer. Um, yeah. yeah, why? Why? I mean, I'm not saying in a bad way at all. I'm just genuinely curious. What is it? Well, I am running. I am running um, old school essentials as well on on uh, a different day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I get my BX fix from there. Yep. Um, <laughs> and the tables, the sequences, the the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The the procedures. Yeah. Uh, in BX, which is probably something I don't know, you're quite quite interested in, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, they are they really speed up play. Uh, mm-hmm. People think it's very artificial, but it's something that really gives a great framework. I find for mm-hmm. you know moving things along. Yep. Uh, but why one first edition? It's just a I don't know. I feel like I start to go towards second edition and I pull back. And I I, I do also like swords and wizardry because um, mm-hmm. it's much more condensed. Mm-hmm. Um, Going more towards old, uh, you know, original D and D, but yeah. um, I, I think part of it is people want to play D and D. They want mm-hmm. to play brand D and D. They don't want to play Osric, which is mm-hmm. unfortunate because Osric is an excellent. Um, I think. Well, I think it's an excellent book. I really mm-hmm. like it. Um, but you know, they're not that interested in learning rules oftentimes, and I don't think it's necessary. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, from what you're saying, maybe that's not such a bad thing that. Um, not that people should be ignorant of the rules, but that they should learn it in a more organic way, like what what really concerns them, what concerns yeah. them as players, and not to sort of break everything down. I had a player looking from mo- at monster stats the other day online. That really annoyed me. <laughs> but you know <laughs> what I mean? Like once you start breaking things down and analyzing yeah. stuff and second guessing the GM, mm. um, while that can be that can be handy. Uh, and useful in certain situations it's, it can also sort of turn the game into a rules lawyer ring exercise right that's mm. sort of and it becomes all about the codification of the game yeah, yeah it's interesting i i um and listen to what you say there you know i realize that for me the um the real joy of this is in the presentation if that makes sense that as in yeah, the description of what's going on um i love all of that you know being able to describe this leathery green skinned creature that is creeping through the corridor um all of that stuff's way more interesting to me than going yeah it's goblin and everybody (laughs) knowing that it's got like two hit points (laughs) and can't hit for toffee um you know that that there's a magic in that evocation you know at the table that you know, for me, I guess what I am is this really frustrated kind of fireside storyteller who who also quite likes having some rules to make me feel safe. Um, and But it is that for me, it is about us gathering in the semi-dark because we used to play, you know, in the evenings, in winter, in, in, in Norfolk, which gets quite dark, um, you know, around the, the dining table at my friend's house um, with very low lighting. Uh, deliberately it's all part of that i think getting around that campfire thing that we've probably been doing for you know millions of years as a species um it's part of that tradition for me and whilst i love that there's a trustworthy mechanism to run everything underneath that and as a gm i love to adjudicate all that stuff and bring all of that to life um ultimately i want to tell the tale with the players and um 
Yeah, I think that when I'm digging through the the monster manual, you know, I'm paying attention to the illustrations and the descriptions way more than the stats, if that makes sense. You yeah. Know, I want to evoke something. But, you know, when I when I chose first edition to go back to first edition or older mm. editions, um, there's obviously reasons for that. But one, one of the reasons, I guess, was because I, I wanted to, I wanted to get back to that sense of you're entering this unknown realm. You're moving into mm. this kind of place, which it, it's not safe. This, this mystical place. You don't know what's behind the door. You don't know mm. uh, what traps lie away from you. You don't know whether if you open that door, the spot, a little pin will prick you in the thing and you'll die oh. of poisoning, right? Mm. And that, that sense of um, um, trepidation or, or whatever it is, jeopardy, um, which it, which was it built into the fighting fantasy books like Death Trap Dungeon. Mm-hmm. That that's what I grew up with. And that's if that danger is taken out and, and that mystery is removed from the game, then mm. it, it's merely about uh, numbers and you know working out probabilities. You know, I said, well, we, we, we can beat those, or we can't. We can beat them. Mm. As soon as you get to that point, that's that level where we know we're talking about hit points and we're comparing we, we know yeah you know, oh this is a first one hit die creature we, we can we can easily overcome them then it, it yeah it becomes less of a, a thing it, as soon as it's all about just rules mm. um i think i think it's that that need for the dungeon master to create something to 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 narrate this this area this strange like um labyrinth or wilderness uh, and for the players to engage with that and then draw mm. out information um, rather than saying can I roll to find out if I know anything about this yeah um, instead saying asking some other questions some more pointed question that 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 deserves a role <laughs> if that mm. makes any sense if there is roles to be made um, so that's that's a real reason behind it mm. I um earlier on I made I used the the typical stereotype of Dungeons and Dragons of the you go down a dungeon you kick in the doors you steal all the treasure, and the reality is I actually think that is a horrible distortion of what Dungeons and Dragons is about. Um, when I look at the player's handbook, um, I'm looking through the section on um, like getting ready for adventure and adventure. So after the spells, there's a there's a section titled traps, tricks, and encounters, and as you get into encounters, then it talks about initiative then communication, negotiation, and then finally you get combat. And to be honest with you, you got a page and a half, well, not even that, a page probably of notes for the player to concern themselves with combat. And a third of that is an example, um, which basically has very little in the way of numbers and dice rolls. It just actually talks a little in about a situation and describes what happens. And to me, when I reread that section, that actually is what evoked so much of the the joy that I remember from the original game is this tension of exploring. And and from there, by the way, it goes on to talk about the dungeon and then the outdoor expedition and then the uh, town adventures as well. Talks about all three of those things. That's that great picture as well of the adventurers carrying the treasure out of the dungeon, right? Yep, absolutely. They're smiling, and they're, mm-hmm. they're going into the light. Um, yeah, you know, and that, that's that's just a wonderful, simple picture, but a wonderful one. But it sort of encapsulates the um, it encapsulates the this excitement of the game. Really, it was mm-hmm. really 
it was exciting and it still is and it can be exciting mm. um it's not about i mean as soon as it's about kicking down the doors then somebody's doing something wrong i think mm. um maybe as a group we're doing something wrong i think it, it can go into those patterns but it's very easy to to solve a <laughs> Mm. such a routine right as a dm i mean you just yeah (laughs) what fascinates me though is that the section on for example poison the description of like you know not be generally possible to envenom a weapon and the section on experience they're almost as long as the section on combat you know and for me it's these little gigaxian details of where he puts attention that just absolutely fascinate me and um, yeah. it kind of brings it down to actually combat is something's gone wrong when you're in a combat a lot of the time um, when you play this game. At least that's that's what I remember. And that's the impression I get from from playing this, you know, looking at this again. So it's kind of interesting. It seems like a, a lot of it was about tweaking, like the advanced Dungeons and Dragons. They, they mm. sometimes say it's to do with conven- convincing play and, mm. and uh, standardizing the rules and so on. Mm-hmm. And, about conventions or not, I, definitely standardizing and putting the Gygaxian stamp on D and D seems to be one of the purposes of the game uh, mm. of the advanced game, right? Mm. But it, it often seems like he's responding to issues that have arise, arisen in the game uh, yeah. as it has developed since 1974, and trying to solve that and to to bring it all together to tighten it up a little bit so that people are playing in a certain spirit. He's definitely sort of he's definitely trying to push a certain spirit of play uh, and it's a lot more um i don't know what the right word is uh con- prescriptivist is kind of a strong word mm. but it it's not as free as the original 1974 book if you read about that it's like oh you can do whatever you want you know you're free <laughs> you can be a dragon you can be a dragon whereas in by 1979 in the dmg he's saying you shouldn't allow people to be monsters. <laughs> if you if you are, do it like this. But generally, you know, it, mm. it, it, the whole the whole feel is very different. He's certainly this is my world. This is my Greyhawk style campaign. Mm. Yeah, you can you can develop your own worlds, but it, it's scope has been um, narrowed compared to 1974. Um, mm. It's not entirely narrowed. It says at the end of the day, these rules are for you, the GM and players to to interpret and to to change. Um, mm. So it's got still got that sen- sensibility in there. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. Before we finish off, I just wanted to sort of reflect on why I was drawn back. And I think the initial simple answer is because it's perhaps a bit lower powered. That was my initial thought, although I'm really less convinced of that now. Um, reread it because, and I, I say that simply because when you look at like seventh level and uh, cleric spells and ninth level magic user spells, for example, you're never going to convince me that they are not the powerful magic wielders. And when you look at what, um, you know, high level fighters can do, um, you know, again, you're going to be, you know, made to think a second think about guess that about i suppose um but it is certainly more swords and sorcery and a lot more sort of grounded i suppose as a fantasy at least at the beginning and, and maybe the thing i remember is the beginning you know because my first level characters died a lot um <laughs> same, my second same. level characters 
died a lot. And um, it's interesting that I actually, in my book, my copy here, I was going to comment on this, I have a cleric's t- spell tables where I have put little pencil marks next to certain spells, which I presume was, these are the ones I have. Um, and there's no pencil marks beyond fourth level cleric spells. Um, so I certainly never had a cleric get beyond a certain so, level, right. right? You know, sort of in any of these games. So if I just flip back to a cleric, that's got to be around about, where are we looking at? Seventh. Seventh or eighth level. Yeah, seventh mm-hmm. or eighth level. So he never got past that, <laughs> as far as I can tell, because otherwise I would have marked my copyright. That's um, pretty high. <laughs> yeah, but maybe, yeah, what, I, what, I, what I'm trying to get at, I suppose, is maybe my memory of this game is rooted in quite low-level play, and that's why I think of it in those terms. But um, when I think about the amazing feats that a fifth edition character can do, and there's nothing wrong with edition, by the way, I play it all the time with the kids at school, um, but it feels different somehow. Um, yeah. What's your thoughts? I th- yeah, I, I agree. I think um, when I first played it, started playing it, we, we played it much more kind of hard, hardcore, I suppose you'd say. Mm. So yeah, we, we did die quite a lot at low levels and it never really got beyond a certain like first, second level. <laughs> um, but then uh, when I started DMing, I, we got to a point where we were starting to use Unearthed Arcana and the mm-hmm. other things and I, I just started to do Monty Hall and just yeah, give give out magic items and XP mm-hmm. and yeah, just let's just have fun. And I didn't mm-hmm. really play like that at all anymore. And yeah, we we went right up the levels. But what happens? It's really much more designed um, for the you know first to third level play, beginning level play where they really really are struggling, mm-hmm. uh, and then the mid level play of you know fourth to eighth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, well, when, once you get to about eight or so, uh, up to ten, I mean, they're so strong. The characters mm-hmm. are so strong. Um, it starts to change quite yeah. a lot. I mean, the monsters—you need really need to redesign the monsters or something because the, mm-hmm. the whole dynamics doesn't quite work anymore. It's not really designed for that kind of play. I think it works best that well. If you like a challenge at low level, and mm. if you if you like more heroics, then the mid level is really is challenging, but uh, mm. you can do a lot more, uh, and that's what the game does, I suppose. Really, mm. yeah. yeah. I guess it goes back to that point you made earlier about the different st- approaches to play. And at a high level, I think the assumption was that you're zipping around the world, solving huge problems, not mm. judging your way through a dungeon. And of course, there's nothing wrong with the player who wants to hold on to the dungeon game. That's probably mm. me, um, mm. but actually. Uh, I don't think that's how they were playing, <laughs> um, you yeah. know, way back in the day. I think by the time you get up to this sort of super level, you're supposed to be taking on deities because the next book in the sequence, you know, was, you know, deities and demigods, right? <clears throat> yeah. Well, I think part of that is that people, a lot of people were really playing obsessively um, mm. at university or in the army. A lot of them mm. talk about people actually in the army who were playing whilst they're just sitting yeah. uh, you know, around the iron curtain <laughs> and we've got much to do. Um, and uh yeah, they started to go way above the level, power level that the original D&D was designed mm. to handle. So it's, a, yeah. it's an interesting case. And that they definitely had to up. When you see an unearthed arcana, for example, mm. the game really starts to shift into a different mm-hmm. format. You know, the, the power level, the, the lot of the restrictions to demi-humans are relaxed, start, start to be relaxed there. Mm. Um, they're relaxed again in second edition and then they disappear, right? In mm. third and Onwards. So it's it's interesting how the game has changed over the years, um, but yeah, it's um, it gives a certain 
feel it has a certain feel it has a sense of challenge and danger um not necessarily lethality so it's as often mm. people say about the lethality i mean there's ways around lethality and there's a lot of things that are in a basic or advanced like retainers or mm. um whatever it might be the, just things the power of charisma <laughs> the power of the gold piece mm. um that that aren't usually um considered anymore yeah. so there's ways to do things there's other ways to do things than to charge in uh with four players or three players and do it just by yourself you know you can you, you can charm monsters you can you can bribe monsters you can do all sorts of things you can use divination spells to see which what's the safe way to achieve the goal that you want to achieve so there's different ways to play the game um and you can do that in later editions of course but i think mm. you have to do it <laughs> you have it forces you to do that in in mm. first or the earlier editions um and it's not a bad thing it's just a different but you know it lends itself to a different play style Mm. not one that is stupid or I don't, I don't think it's one that is uh, any way inferior which is sadly something that occasionally comes up it's certainly it's an interesting game it's, like, it's just a different game mm. I mean I'm always um, personally always um, you know shy of the two extremes in thinking the one of the the person who looks back at the original and says, well, it's the original, it must be the best, um, you know, and the older things are better. I, I'm very, very leery of that assumption, but I'm equally um, as suspicious of the the new must be the best kind of mindset. And I guess what um, I love about this conversation is that we are sitting here saying, now there's a real value to this, um, this old game, which is sort of somewhere in the middle of all of that, really. I mean, it's the early, but it's still middle early <laughs> you know what i mean um and it is a particular expression of dungeons and dragons that i think uh deserves a revisitation it deserves having a look at um and 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 uh you know that's that's for me the value yours thoughts yeah it's not going to appeal to everybody and you mm. know no, you don't everybody you don't have to like everything this is a really important thing to remember you can you can appreciate other people's likes and dislikes mm. without having to sort of invest in that yourself, right? Yeah, and just say if you're a you're a um, a chess player, it doesn't mean you have to look down on miniature wargaming, mm. or if you're a role player, you don't have to look down on miniature wargaming either. So this idea that there's some kind of conflict and one thing is more advanced than the other, mm. uh, I don't really see. I see these things as being mutually compatible. Um, mm. compatible is maybe where they can coexist let's say they can coexist mm. people can enjoy chess just because it's old it doesn't make it uh, redundant in any way it still has a certain the certain things that that game does that no other game can do mm. uh, and this is similar various types of role-playing games and and for different editions of Dungeons and Dragons so I really don't I have my preferences obviously um, but I'm mm. you know I wouldn't say hey you should play this game because why why you know why force mm. them to do something that's just not <laughs> for them right yeah i think um for me the thing here is understanding its place and i think like for us um you know we're older gentlemen 
um, you know, you've mentioned this to me a few times when you've called in as well. Um, we're all the gentlemen now. And this is part of our formation of our hobby. This was there at the beginning when we were learning how to play and is very important to us um, for lots and lots of different reasons. And some of us like to go back and play these things. And some of us, like, I mean, like me, to be honest with you, it's been on my shelf for a long, long while. Um, but it has been nice to revisit it. I'm not sure I'm going to rush in and play it um, because uh, I there are other games I prefer, if you like. But the, the, yeah. the thing to recognise, I feel, is that this is an important part of our hobby and our history. And to simply assume that because it's you know it goes back to 1977-79 that it's somehow you know, worthless is, I think, a dangerous assumption. Yeah, yeah definitely. Right. Well, on that note, and given that we've been chatting for an hour, I think we'll wrap it up. Have you got any last words about anyone who was thinking about coming back to uh, Dungeons and Dragons? Oh, just do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or, or for people who have never played before, um, but for some reason they're listening to this or they're interested mm-hmm. in it. I, um, yeah, just just play whatever edition you're able to play and pick up books and, and experiment. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, if you have an interest or you had an interest in it, the chances are that there'll still be something worthwhile in that game for you. And as you get older, you see different things, you get different value from it, and you, you can approach these games, um, some of which may have just been kicking the door down and killing everything and stealing the treasure. You can appro- you can approach them in a different way, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in different parts of your life. You see different things of value, different things that are, uh, you want to, to focus on. Um, mm. so they don't stand still and they're not simply sort of uh, nostalgic um, artifacts. They, 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 they are working games and they can, they are totally reliant on your imagination, your input uh, without you, the player or the dungeon master, they, they don't, they're not worth anything. Yeah. So, they are incomplete. They require yeah. a goal. You know, you need to decide what you're trying to do and then they require the people. You're absolutely yeah. right. I think it's interesting. The thing I biggest thing that sort of stuck out to me in this conversation, if I may, is that you said you sat down for a one shot, really. Well, hey, let's have a game of this. And he was several months later still playing. Um, I think that speaks a lot about this game. Yeah, well, it was it was the village of Hoblet. And I thought, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll only take a few sessions. And somehow this 17 page, can you imagine, 17 page mm-hmm. module, it took us a year and a half to complete. Wow. <laughs> uh, we just got so much out of it. It just expanded and expanded. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's so much you can do with something, even very something very simple. Menian, a.k.a. Rob, all the way from Japan. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks so much, Shay. Big thank you once again to Minion, aka Rob, for coming and sharing his experiences and thoughts with us. I'll stick the link to Rob's podcast, Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy, in the show notes. It's a really good listen. Thank you once again to John from Tale of the Manticore for the Roleplay Rescue theme music. Thanks also to all the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Most of all, thank you to you for showing up and listening. Really do appreciate it, and I hope you enjoyed the show. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again on the flip side.
game on.